the industry defines the day that the seller sells as success. And it should be celebrated. There mm-hmm. should be a celebration. It was hard work to get to that closing. Mm-hmm. But I learned the hard way that success is less about that day as it is about um, perhaps a year or two later when I meet back up with that client and I hear what happened from the closing table to that day. So what I came up with uh, after many years of introspection and experience is what I call the M&A bridge. Hi, this is Studying Way of Success, and I'm Eric Weir. Mergers and acquisitions. I'm talking t- today with Hagen Rogers. What are mergers and acquisitions? He's going to refer them to as, as M&A. Okay, what are mergers? What are acquisitions? Uh, first, I'll say that, uh, and I, I said this before we started, I, I actually uh, cynically say there's really no true merger. Um, that's used all the time in the field, but... There's always a buyer and there's always a seller. So uh, while merger of equals, you hear that term a lot, uh, the fact of the matter is uh, there's typically a buyer and a seller of a company. So M&A or mergers and acquisitions are typically acquisitions where there's a buyer. The buyer can be a strategic operating company, a company that's in your industry who who wants to buy your company uh, and and take it under its wings. Um, there could be a financial buyer. Financial buyers can be private equity funds, hedge funds, uh, family offices that instead of managing a portfolio of stocks and bonds, they may have a little bit of that, but they also buy and sell companies. So M&A is the process by which you either sell or buy a company. And within that huge wide umbrella, there are many different steps and processes involved to do it well. So, so M&A, or merger and acquisition, are the steps and processes from which you buy or sell a business, effectively? Yes. Okay. How do you, as, as, an, as an advisor in, in, in mergers and acquisitions, how do you get paid? So uh, how I get paid is when I'm hired, I'm typically hired in what we call the preparation phase. And um, we typically charge either an a la carte fee for specific steps in the preparation phase, let's maybe valuing a business. Maybe we're valuing a company that wants to sell. Um, and then uh, once they decide to sell, then we have a several month a retainer, a monthly retainer that covers our expenses to get the company from wanting to sell to going into the marketplace. Uh, and then once we're in the marketplace, we, we typically get paid a uh, progress fee once we get the company under a letter of intent where there's one buyer and the co- with the company that's going to sell. And then we don't get paid typically, in t- again, until there's a closing. So we get a closing fee, and that fee most often is based off of what the in the industry we call double Lehman. Um, the infamous Lehman Brothers coined this, and that is – 10% on the first million, 8% on the second million, 6% on the third, 4%, 2%, and then 1% thereafter. Sell side and buy side. Buy side's a little bit different. Um, well, they're, they're typically monthly retainers or a la carte fees, and then a closing fee once we've sold the business. And because of this unique approach we have, which we'll 
get to the M&A bridge. Um, that we also have uh, fees where we bring in partners, collaborative partners that are helping on due diligence and integration, and we may get paid a small cut from what they get paid to serve our mutual client. So in layman's terms, you help people who want to buy a business, buy a business, and those who want to sell a business, you help them to sell a business. Is there a, 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 an average size of business that, that, that you work with? Yeah, so uh, the industry would classify Watermark as working with the lower middle market, and that sounds derogatory, but mm. basically that is uh, helping companies on the sell side uh, that are typically revenues up to $50 million, mm-hmm. and... Um, and, and then on the low end, typically, or, or maybe a little south of $10 million, mm-hmm. that range. So 10, typically 10 to $50 million revenues. And then on the buy side, the clients are typically revenues $70 million to $500 million, but they're looking to do a deal that is buy, acquire a company that's typically around 10 to $50 million. So revenues. So valuations of companies. That's a nice way of saying, you know, what's a dollar earned worth if another company buys it? So smaller companies, d- due to maybe higher fixed expenses, maybe you could tell me why is that? If I earn $5 million as a small business or $2 million, and when I want to sell it, what's my multiple of my earnings? And then if I'm a larger company and I want to buy it, then I want to, why would I want to buy a smaller company? What does that do to, to my profits or to my shareholders or to, 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 to my stakeholders? So you always, as a buyer, you always want to think about return on investment. And uh, the return on investment, uh, you, you look at that in hindsight after the acquisition is made, and you want to make sure that your return on investment is greater than the what we call in the industry a hurdle rate or the cost of doing the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, multiples are, they vary per industry. I have some data here uh, that's current data on different industries, whether you're a manufacturer, um, manufacturers in 2022 sold for an EBITDA of 7.4 times. However, if you're in the um, technology, media and telecom space, for example, uh, companies in that space in 2022 sold for 9.1 times EBITDA. Mm -hmm. And then as you move up in size, so companies where the enterprise value or purchase price, we interchangeable, is 10 to 25 million. All industries in 2022, those multiples were 6.2 times. But for companies that sold, they were 100 to 250 million. They sold for an average of 9.2 times. So as the company gets larger, the multiple gets larger. Industries are very. So if I have a company that makes a million a year and I sell it for three or four million, and another company who buys me makes 25 million a year them just by buying me, they already double their money, right? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a trick to the trade, as we say, because once that acquirer acquires your cash flows, if you sold for a three to four times multiple and the buyer, much larger, $25 million, has a, a EBITDA multiple of, say, six or seven, that's immediate, an immediate valuation kick to the buyer at day one. And that's why... Um, infrequent acquirers, surprisingly or, or not surprisingly, miss that understanding. Private mm-hmm. equity has mastered that, and that's why they, private equity will often pay a premium because they realize at day one there's immediate financial synergy value to making that acquisition. So in that illustration, you make 50 to 100% the day you, you close could. the transaction. You could. It's possible, right? Yeah. So, so what we're seeing, why are you seeing the uh, – years ago, you had, everyone had a, a doctor – 
and it was a fa- family doctor. He lived in your community. He had a house he rented or an office building. You don't you don't see that anymore. I mean, it's very rare. It's not zero, but now it's it's medical centers, and now you're seeing that. With veterinarian practices, this is sort of the same thing. Would you comment on that? Are there, are there big changes that are coming? Well, I think you're talking about uh, consolidation of industries. Correct. And like the laundromat that used mm-hmm. to be the, the family-owned, third-generation laundromat. I know I use one uh, here in Greenville that's second-generation. Those are becoming more rare. And in that, you, I mean, that's a strategy of M&A we would call economies of scope. Uh, and about half of the deals are economy of, of scope acquisitions where uh, a buyer is trying to roll up an industry. And as a result, being a big player in a very fragmented industry, they are able to spread their costs across a, 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 a larger revenue stream and create more value for their shareholders that way. So absolutely, that's happening in many industries. So, so in the, the, the dryer example, the, the laundromat or whatever you, you have, what kind of multiple would a single location have if they wanted to sell? Um, so I'm, I'm just going to throw out some guess here. I would say a, a local successful uh, cleaner may have top-line revenues of a couple million, maybe less than $5 million. I'm going to guess their EBITDA multiple would be – uh, four to five times, okay. uh, which in the scheme of things, that's pretty low. Right. Uh, but then when that buyer, that consolidator acquires them, they may have a nine, eight, seven, nine times EBITDA. So again, there's that immediate uh, okay. value creation that the buyer uh, achieves. If somebody wants to, to uh, you know, learn more about mergers and acquisitions or say I want to sell my business, say, hey, I have a business successful, I've had it for X number of years, and I don't have an heir apparent or I don't know what to do with it, I mean, how would you help somebody like that? Well, surprisingly, this is a major question that is uh, different business owners that, that are very successful in building their company often don't know where to turn. There are mm-hmm. a lot of places they go to. Uh, most often and first, they typically go to their peer group and find out who uh, a peer used to mm-hmm. sell their company. Mm-hmm. And they start going down just a networking path that may be with their uh, accountant or their attorney or their wealth manager to, to get referrals. It's really a referral-driven business. There are also exit planning organizations that are all they do are advise uh, business owners and planning mm-hmm. to sell. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a whole industry out there, but I I'll share time permitting uh, some some holes I believe in how that's done. Mm-hmm. Um, there are really some great tips I can share the business with the business owner about uh, be careful about making these decisions without doing certain practices. So so who are your mentors? I mean, who 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 do you look to and who, who did you learn from? I would say in the world of, uh, well, first, you know, I, I discovered I, I loved M&A in business school. I, I uh, was in my first year, my internship after my first year was with Chase Securities in Houston and their M&A group. And that's where I knew that's what I wanted to do. I helped sell a company out of Beaumont, Texas uh, to a private equity fund. And the experience of buyer and seller in the room and that I was a part of preparing the materials for that meeting uh, it was it was just uh, a decision point in my life. This is what I want to do. Um, I'd say there have been three mentors. 
at, at uh, I was at Wachovia Securities for several years, mm-hmm. and uh, Jim Morgan, who is a Greenville native um, and was running at the time Interstate Johnson Lane, mm-hmm. I had a great admiration for him as CEO of Interstate Johnson Lane, who then became, for a brief time, CEO of Wachovia Securities. Could not be um, a greater mentor personally. And uh, he was just an encourager. And um, so secondly, I would say a managing director at Wachovia Securities while I was there, who mm-hmm. Wachovia had brought him over to build the M&A practice from Solomon Brothers, mm-hmm. Ben Duster. Ben uh, spent almost 20 years at Solomon Brothers on Wall Street in M&A. And um, I would have never started Watermark had I not had the commitment from Ben to help on the client side. Mm-hmm. I had had a, a fair amount of experience on the client execution side, but more on the business development side. Mm-hmm. His commitment to helping me, which led to about an eight-year uh, partnership where he helped on every client deal, was mm-hmm. – was, uh, invaluable to me. And then finally, I would say, uh, from a textbook perspective, Bob Bruner, who is the former dean at the UVA Darden School, mm-hmm. um, and he has written two books on M&A that are really my go-to sources. Uh, and I got the great opportunity to interview him several years ago, and that interview is on our website. Just mm. a super sharp uh, man who is very deep in research on M&A. Okay. You know, as a, as a have have different guests on, you realize business is a lot about you know solving problems, problems that arise. What problems do you feel that you solve for for people you work with? A great question. I, I think it's really helping, whether it's on the sell side. Most often, I'm dealing with families, and this mm-hmm. is their largest asset, and it's an illiquid asset, and they don't know what it means to monetize this asset. And so the trust that they put in the M&A advisor, Watermark in my case, is, is significant. I feel that trust every time I get hired to uh, help the, the family monetize what is often a career's worth of work in building a company. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say, uh, you know, that is uh, a tremendous honor to, to, to help. Uh, but, but the problem, so that's the problem is how do we sell this company and get out of it with a great outcome? So I think the kind of big picture is that I'm helping the either the buyer or the seller avoid regret and mm-hmm. get to the best outcomes, whether it's selling uh, at a high valuation and that the buyer is going to steward the company well. And then on the buy side, uh, it's really about avoiding regret, which 70 to 80% of the time, Bob Bruner writes about in his books, mm-hmm. uh, the buyer doesn't create significant return on an investment above the hurdle rate for strategic acquirers. And so regret is high. I can share personal stories of regret, mm-hmm. um, and those don't get talked about enough, frankly, but I think it gets labeled as M&A's a, bad, M&A's right. a greedy industry, and there are bad people in it. And uh, the fact is that it's hard to do M&A well, and... I've learned over the years there's a better way to do M&A, which we can talk about today, called the M&A Bridge. Sure. So you talk about regrets. So another way to look at regrets may be mistakes or failures or fumbles or setbacks. What are some of the common failures or mistakes you see people making as a seller? um, So I'll try to be concise here. Uh, I think thinking back on Watermark's history, one example would be 
that um, the buyer uh, underestimates. You asked about sellers for the seller. Um, a seller sold the business to a buyer that underestimated the importance of those business owners in running the business, and they quickly let them go. And then the company they just bought goes down the tubes. Mm -hmm. um, that has happened to one of my clients. Uh, and so then there's this regret that they sold to that company, even though they sold at a high multiple. That was their baby, and they watched their baby just starve to death. Mm. Um, another regret is that some, a lot of times successful businesses get approached by acquirers to uh, enter into <clears throat> what we call a preemptive offer. Mm -hmm. Buyers don't want other buyers at the table. They want mm -hmm. to be the only ones at the table. And so a regret in hindsight often for the seller is that uh, if they had not been lured into that one buyer, but in, instead had considered a, a broader process where they brought multiple buyers to have a competitive process, they would have gotten to a better outcome. Mm -hmm. um, I can go on and on. Um, uh, you know, another is that when the seller first gets evaluation, they don't hire a firm that sets up five-year you know, projections, projections that go into a discounted cash flow model. I'm getting very technical. I'll mm -hmm. try not to get too technical. Um, leaves money on the table most often, and it's hard to build projections on businesses that don't typically run that. The, the, the CEO doesn't go through that exercise organically. Um, so valuation, how valuation is done early on can be a big mistake. Um, contingency payments. A lot of times companies sell 40% of the time to get a deal closed. The seller has to accept what we call contingency payments or earnouts. Mm -hmm. That can be 20%, 30% of the entire purchase price. And I would say uh, arguably maybe half the time those earnouts aren't fully captured. So mm -hmm. purchase price is lost. Uh, not at the close, but a year or two later, wow. and there's a huge regret. Uh, so regret goes on and on and on. Hmm. <clears throat> what what does due diligence look like if you're somebody who says I want to buy a business? You know, I, I don't want to start it. I'm not a 1.0 kind of entrepreneur. Maybe a 2.0. I, I, I can. I, I talked to a wealthy man I do one time. He goes, Well, the world will never know if I can start a business but they'll know that I know how to run a business and grow a business. There are a lot of people who are yeah. like that. So if I wanted to come in and buy a business that, that, that's successful in an area that, that I thought you know, would have growth and it fit my aptitude, what due diligence should I do? Uh, it's, it, it's one of the most significant decisions the buyer <clears throat> will make is who do they staff and help them with due diligence? Mm -hmm. To what degree do they execute due diligence? Um, due diligence, the, the extent of it depends on the, the, who the seller is. Mm -hmm. um, but most often, there are anywhere from five to ten areas of due diligence that the buyer needs to consider. Financial, tax due diligence. Financial, you're looking at the quality mm -hmm. of the earnings. Mm -hmm. And tax goes with that. Um, the tax history of the seller how the deal will get structured from a tax standpoint. That's most often done by a CPA firm, mm -hmm. uh, what they call transactional due diligence. Mm -hmm. um, HR and cultural due diligence are often underestimated in significance. Some of the greatest problems that buyers have after they buy the company are HR issues. Mm. We can spend hours talking about sure. regret there. 
but um, who they hire for HR due diligence mm-hmm. and cultural due diligence, culture, there's often this courtship where buyer and seller uh, come across as, wow, we're similar companies, we're just bigger, and, uh, but uh, there are no two cultures that are exactly the same. And right. cultural differences cause lots of problems in cultural integration. Legal, uh, I can share stories of uh, if we had only had the lawyer early on do a, an extensive legal due diligence and discovered that, hey, you, you, the seller, don't actually own the trademarks you've been building your company on, uh, but now it's time to sell and the buyer discovers you don't own the trademarks. Mm-hmm. That seems pretty basic, but surprisingly, when you don't do due diligence early as the seller, uh, you can miss some things that haven't affected running your business, but mm-hmm. affect due diligence. But just to round them out, operational due diligence, where you're looking at inventory mm-hmm. and manufacturers, um, commercial commercial due diligence has been a game changer for some of my clients where mm-hmm. they hire a third party to investigate the supply channels, the, the reputation of the seller in the marketplace, their company. And we've discovered some things that have caused our deals not to close, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not regret, it's, it's a win because we discover things that um, we didn't understand early on. And that's commercial due diligence. But environmental, insurance, IT, uh, in, uh, there, there are many different areas of due diligence, and you've got to think holistically about all of them. It's not like a checklist. You're not checking things off. It's doing a thorough job on due diligence and then saying, what does this mean about buying the company? And the terms of the deal, the risk I'm taking on, and what does it mean for how I'm going to handle as the buyer uh, the integration of of buyer and seller? How did COVID-19 impact you? I mean, it impacted the world. You saw the the Federal Reserve begin to slash interest rates, and you saw the money supply grow substantially. And then we have had inflation that's higher than it's been in 40 years. Yeah. So that's super amount of a, a huge amount of turbulence in, in the economy. How that affected how did, how did it affect small businesses or, or M&A? Very much situation specific. I found that when COVID first came on the scene in March of 2020, our market froze up. Uh, we had a buy side client that we had just hired an infrequent or just been hired for an infrequent acquirer. And within a week or two, they, they paused the process. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so there was really a, a kind of a, a paralysis in the M&A market until mid to late summer. And once we got to August, there was kind of a pent-up demand for, hey, as a seller, I wanted to sell. Uh, I'm not going to let COVID hold me back. I want to move forward with the sell. And that really just, there was kind of an unleashing of a lot of pent-up energy behind Mm -hmm. M&A that carried on through the end of 2021. And then I'd say to the first half of 22, record years in M&A. now, with inflation, as, as that has reared its ugly head, and as you said, the highest inflation in 40 years, that affects valuations. Um, and How does and, it affect this? Make it go up? Make it go down? How does it affect well, valuations? Well, uh, what I'm seeing is it's caused revenues to go up in my clients on the sell side. Their revenues are up year over year because of inflation and pricing, right. uh, putting pricing changes. Like into if you sell concrete and the, the price of concrete goes up, you can sell less concrete and still have higher sales. Yeah, maybe less volume, but Correct. higher revenues because right. of the price increases that have been accepted throughout the markets. 
Um, you know, however, with interest rates going up, not to get too technical, that affects valuation. So um, we, we are seeing valuations, mo multiples moderate, and we don't think we've hit a bottom yet. But, but big picture, the volume of M&A was substantial mid last year as the Fed, uh, I'd say the June Fed hike uh, was really a tipping point that slowed the larger end of the M&A market. It slowed acquisition activity with large deals, not so much with the mid, lower mid market. Uh, so we see a continuation. And in, in Eric, interestingly enough, I've shared this with my uh, market that M&A has um, decoupled to a great extent from the economy. That is because over the years, corporates that make acquisitions have built up huge levels of cash. Private equity funds have record level of capital to invest. So even as the economy weakens, and it, we think it will continue to weaken, um, uh, to what degree I can't say, but we're not to the bottom yet, in my opinion. That hasn't, I mean, M&A has moderated, but it's not a one-to-one -one parity for the economy's uh, a recession if that d happens to a great extent. M&A is not going to slow significantly because it is decoupled from the economy to an extent. Yeah. You use the R word, recession. Yeah. So, so do you think we're in one? We're, we're, we're going to be in one? I, I heard, uh, I was watching CNBC this morning on the elliptical. And they were talking about you know the, the 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 surprising strength of the economy, and how rates are already like four point seven percent, and they're expecting now to go five five and a half percent just because of the the strength and the, the the resilience. So, what does that do when the cost of money goes up? And do you think that that can cause a recession, or do you think we're already in a recession? Well, for me, I've never watched the markets more closely than starting in say. 2020, 2021, and I was frankly shocked at the um, the COVID policy of the, the the injection of money supply into the marketplace, uh, a shocking increase in money supply, which caused inflation. Um, the jobs market has, interestingly, maybe surprisingly, held up. So I don't know that we are in a recession now. Um, the numbers don't prove that out at this point, but. Um, I think that as interest rate hikes continue, and the Fed does, I, from everything I hear, the Fed will continue to raise interest rates, maybe not at the, at the, uh, the rate hike per month at what we saw in 22, but I do think we will see a, a gradual uh, slowdown in the economy as the job market weakens further. And um, what does that mean for M&A? I think that for the seller, it means you've got to ha you've got to be what we call an athlete, an athlete, or an ideally an an elite athlete. Mm -hmm. um, if you're an athlete, or if your company is an elite athlete, it will hold up well. There will be buyers at the table, but if you're not an athlete, uh, you should be careful uh, attempting to sell your company and what is going to be. Uh, probably weakening conditions. I, um, uh, there, there's so many signs. It depends on who you watch and who you read uh, as to their optimism or pessimism about the market, the economy. But um, I, I'm a little more of a pessimist than an optimist at this point, and that's not my nature. So, Right, 
Right. I talked to a family office in Dubai yesterday, and they were saying that they expect things to, to get more challenging as well. So I've, I've heard that a few, a few times. So, so um, we, we talk about in the, in the, the book I have, Who's Eating Your Pie? Faith, Family, Fitness, Finance, and Friends. And all five areas are important, uh, difficult to balance, and to, to try to seek to have a harmony in the areas. How do you harmonize finance in your life? Because this is your business, and how, how, how do you do that? And, and, and you hit your objectives and, and hit your goals and advise other people. Uh, what, a, what a tough question. Um, I, I also believe in balance and, and use similar categories that you're describing. And with finance, I guess I assume you're asking in relationship if you're running a company, right. how do you harmonize finance? Um, I think it starts with uh, being realistic about where you are today. Uh, I think you've got to do more research today on uh, where is your money and what investments is it in. Uh, and the world is changing in front of our eyes in many ways that are hard to get your hands around. Mm -hmm. I think we're at the precipice of, of some really major changes in uh, how – the economy works with AI and potentially central bank digital currencies and the like that, that um, I just think right now the most important thing is to be a really uh, a researcher and, and don't almost throw away your confidence that you have it all figured out because if you do have, um, hopefully not hubris, but too, too much confidence uh, I don't think it's going to serve you well over the next few years. Uh, right. As a business owner, I think it's uh, I think business success starts with great strategy. Uh, you know, revisiting your business strategy once a year is so important, more so now than ever. If that's not your area of expertise, having someone in your network that is a excellent advisor on strategy and and uh, have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, and, um, and be very diligent watching what assumptions am I getting right and what assumptions am I getting wrong, and be willing to change course pretty quickly. If you're, if you're running a small business, you're listening to the show today, you're like, man, this is some fantastic things, but these, they're talking about bigger businesses than I have. You have a small business. You mentioned strategy. What does strategy mean to like a sole proprietor? What does it mean to a small business owner when you're saying, "Hey, th th things may slow down." So, what do you what do you do? What strategy do you do you employ? Uh, there's so many different ways to look at strategy, and I was influenced by a professor at Vanderbilt um, at the at the Owen School that uh, I I really liked his mindset of at the heart of strategy is business model. Business model is, um, you know that's kind of the secret sauce of your company. So with, let me give you an example of Starbucks, for example, the classic, you know, what, what has made Starbucks such a success? Uh, their coffee, uh, many think it's wonderful and they go there every day. Others don't like it. But at the heart of their business model is they want to be the third place you go in your day, every day. You live at home, you work at the office, now more so again, but Starbucks wants to be that third place you go. So every, their strategy was about building a business model around locations. So for every business, no matter what size, the same tools of strategy apply, whether you're Starbucks or you're a small startup business. Uh, business model is at the heart of it, but then you have vision, 
you have roadmap, you have milestones, uh, you have uh, your team that executes strategy, and all of those combinations of, of those different areas together make up your your strategy map, as uh, this professor David First um, would would tell me. And um, so we work with clients. Uh, we make sure that before they sell, they have a really great strategy for the next five years as if they're not selling. If they were to run their business for the next five years, what would they do? And we want to take that first, get that clear, and then bring that back into numbers. And the numbers become the valuation. So strategy leads the ship, no matter in good economies or bad. It's, mm-hmm. it's really about strategy is the heart of health for a business and back to your even wealth planning. That's your greatest asset. When you talked earlier, you mentioned that um, there's a lot of cash. Companies have, have accumulated a lot of cash. Um, VC firms have. Are you seeing that people are, are sitting on the cash right now? They're, they're pausing, trying to see what, what direction the economy is going? I think more so in the VC, and I don't interact much with VC, mm-hmm. but I do hear that VC investment has slowed uh, more reluctance there than in private equity, which are private equity is dealing, excuse me, more with operating companies that are generating at least one or two million in operating income or EBITDAs we use uh, internally in our industry. Uh, so PE has not slowed down. Uh, for the most part, there's tremendous levels of capital and they continue there. The savvy buyer, Eric, is really leveraging this point in history that we haven't seen now for over a decade where the, the market shifted in 2022, I'd say, from being a sell side market for over a decade to a buyer's market. And we're in a buyer's market right now. So those acquirers who know that if you acquire in a recession or a downturn, you typically have better outcomes from ROI, from return on investment, than if you buy only in good times. There are less buyers at the table, and uh, they valuations are not as, um, as some people say, frothy as, as, uh, uh, as in good times. So, so if buyers are, are slowing, there are fewer buyers, right? So the cost of money goes up. The amount of people able to buy or wanting to buy, desiring to buy goes down. So that co- that's a slowdown, effectively. When things slow down, people get concerned. Is that right? When they get concerned, they continue to be cautious, which, again, accelerates the slowdown. It's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So we are setting up, in your view, for a slowdown that may even slow at, a, at, a, at, a, at an increasing rate. What's the catalyst? Is there a buying frenzy? Is there a, wow, it's gone too far? Is there a catalyst? that we should look for that says, hey, maybe things are changing, getting better. Because you're saying, people say, we haven't seen the bottom yet. Well, I so think the what, consumer, what the, like? the consumer, we haven't seen the full extent of the downturn on the consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I talk uh, to different people and they say, hey, you know, I was on a plane and I went on this vacation and uh, things are hopping. And, uh, and yet, so I don't think we've hit the, but the realization of your credit card debt is up. Uh, credit card payments are, are slowing uh, to be on time. They're not as, uh, there's delinquency or delay in paying the credit card company. So um, I think that um, we haven't hit a bottom yet. Uh, and, and, you know, so the savvy buyer recognizes that, hey, uh, we want to buy great companies in recessions or downturns and 
now's our time. And, and so I think that, uh, remind me your question. Your question was, uh, we haven't seen the bottom. We yet. haven't seen the bottom. Is there a catalyst that we say, oh, maybe we've seen it? The catalyst, M&A is a lagging. Uh, uh, the market, M&A uh, increase in deal f- volume, is, it lags the uh, upturn of the economy. Uh, if you look back over 50 years, when an economy turns, go back to the 70s when we had a really uh, downturn, and then it started coming out of that downturn in early 80s. Uh, the M&A market took a couple of years later to get out of a, a downturn in volume. So I think the catalyst is the economy turns and that we see uh, more rosy economic uh, indicators and then wait another year or two, and then you'll start to see the M&A market come out of, mm-hmm. of but again, it's not going to be as dramatic or severe uh, a downturn in the M&A market as the economy. I see. One well, of us are blocks. I came by your I came by your office, I guess I've known you maybe 15 years or so now, thereabouts, and I came by your office one time to talk about merger and acquisitions. And then you then you had these, these boards with blocks on them, <laughs> and you had everything about culture, operations, legal, uh, M&A team, planning, negotiation, financing. And I left there thinking, wow, this is a lot more complicated than I had considered it being. And then you have one for uh, buyers and one for sellers, yep. kind of a, a monopoly board. Not a monopoly board, <laughs> but it kind of looks like that a little bit. Yep. And can you just kind of just, just walk us through just a few of this from a 30,000-foot level? How are you different? What's your, what's your value proposition? Uh, Watermark's value proposition is uh, we learned the hard way over the years that regret happens mm-hmm. not at the closing table. Uh, the, the industry defines the day that the seller sells as success, and it should be celebrated. There mm-hmm. should be a celebration. It was hard work to get to that closing. Mm-hmm. But I learned the hard way that success is less about that day as it is about um, perhaps a year or two later when I meet back up with that client and I hear what happened from the closing table to that day. So what I came up with uh, after many years of introspection and experience is what I call the M&A bridge. Um, So imagine in Greenville, we have this beautiful Falls Park and this bridge uh, that was built in 2004 and it, cars don't go across it, but it's, it's uh, a walking bridge. So what I tell buyer and seller is, you know, you've built a great company, but to sell or to buy a company, you have to cross this bridge, and you don't live on this bridge. So what's made you successful to date has been all the knowledge you have about your industry and the know-how and the people skills and the marketplace, but this is a bridge you have to cross that Maybe you've never crossed it before. And look, if you're a buyer, there are 28 blocks or steps or processes you need to be aware of, and you need to make smart decisions about those 28 areas. As a seller, there are 20, and they're in three phases, preparation, transaction, integration. So my approach is a collaborative, comprehensive approach. I don't know it all. I don't know everything I need to to, to properly advise my client as an M&A advisor, but what I can do is put together the best team of external advisors with me. That's the collaboration. So on the buy side, that collaboration occurs in due diligence, in integration. 
because that's where most of the fumbles and landmines happen, not so much in what I call core M&A, which is what I do, but in those two other areas. In sell side, the game is won or lost in preparation. Uh, how you prepare to sell your business will dictate what happens in the mm-hmm. transaction phase. The Why that's a value proposition, so collaborative and comprehensive, the difference is the traditional way of, of uh, you go hire an M&A advisor is mm-hmm. it's what I call the parachute approach. Mm. The parachute approach is it's a very smart advisor and they're probably an industry expert and they are, but they're going to parachute down. You're on the bridge and help you pre-market the business. Think about who the buyer should be, write a great memorandum about your company. They're going to take you through the transaction and the day of close or success, they're gone. The fact of the matter is most of the fumbles and landmines don't show up even for seller until the integration phase, which can be a year after the close. Mm -hmm. So, and they're gone and they've taken this big success fee. So my approach is this bridge is longer than you think. It's more, uh, there's a lot involved in making great decisions and let us help you all the way, all three phases Mm -hmm. to where you step off the bridge and we can step off together and you can see in hindsight, I made great choices. Great. Well, thank you. Um, as we prepare to conclude, I mean, if somebody's listening to the show and say, well, I'd love to learn more about merger and acquisitions or, you know, how did you end up in your seat? What, what books or, or podcasts or audio books should, should somebody either read or listen to? Well, I'll go back to one of my mentors, Bob Bruner. I think he has mm-hmm. um, one of the best books out there. It's almost 20 years old now, uh, but uh, it's called Applied M&A. Okay. And it's dense, but it's excellent. Okay. Applied M and A, um, you know, M and A's. Uh, it's still an industry where you almost can't get all the intel you need unless you do it, mm-hmm. um, and you have to be under the the wings of a director, managing director, who really wants to transfer that knowledge to you. So I was very fortunate, again, to have Ben Duster uh, for for several years. Uh, be that mentor to me. So outside of textbook, uh, you'd almost have to get into the industry to learn. That sounds uh, discouraging, but um, the fact of the matter is it's, 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 a, it's a very detailed industry, um, and you just have to experience it either inside a company, get on the team. If you're on the buy side, try to get on the M&A team that, that you can be a part of some transactions with your company. On the sell side, um, it is find uh, people in your network who have gone across this bridge. Don't talk to just one, talk to many and get a sense for how did it go? What were the fumbles and landmines they experienced? Mm-hmm. When did those show up and what would they do differently? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of a combination of academic and real life. Great, great. Well, thanks for, th- 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 thanks a lot, Hagen. I appreciate being on my show today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Eric. Great. And Thank th- you. thanks for joining us on another episode of Studying Your Way to Success with Eric Weir. My special guest today was Hagen Rogers. Thank you.